scary stories that you cannot get out of your head. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Are we absolutely out of our minds for doing this? I asked as I pulled the strap of my pack as tight as I could across my chest and shifted it around until the weight was properly balanced on my hips. Well, the next ferry off the island isn't until late tomorrow, so we might as well explore it in the meantime. Sam smiled at me knowingly and gestured towards the trail with his head. The vast wilderness awaits. And with that, He turned and took the first steps into the five-day backpacking trip my boyfriend requested for his 40th birthday. And I begrudgingly agreed to join him on. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely love a good hike, especially in the stunning Pacific Northwest. But I'm more of a car camper, and Sam insists we go deep, deep into the woods for this trip. He argued that there aren't many opportunities in life to not have contact with another human being for several days, and that it's imperative that we take a break from the man-made world every once in a while for a full reset. He's not wrong, but I also like people and modern conveniences. As it turns out, though, I love this man enough to indulge him as he reconnects with his primal self, or whatever. At least this time. And Sam is an avid hiker and camper, and is meticulous about planning these excursions, so I know I'm in good hands, and that every second and every step have been accounted for. It's our goal to accomplish a 45-mile trek over five days, and so according to Sam's plan, we need to hike five miles on the first day to stay on track. That would get us to our first campsite well before dark, and give us enough time to set up our tents and make dinner before the light disappears behind the enormous trees that surround us. We chose this route because it ends at a coastal town where we have reservations to stay at a stunning B&B with an award-winning restaurant, and I'm already craving the glass of champagne I'll be pretending to enjoy to celebrate my boyfriend's 40th, but will in actuality be drinking to celebrate the end of my first, and likely last, backcountry adventure. The first few hours go smoothly. It is stunning in this part of the world, there's no doubt about it. You can really feel how vast and ancient the planet is in a place like this. I try to fathom what the world was like when the massive trees were just saplings, or the natural events that carved the breathtaking gorge we drove over to get here, but it's not something my mortal mind can really wrap itself around, and so I just let the green wash over me and count myself lucky that I get to experience it at all. Sam seems right at home in the wilderness, and I can't help but fall a little deeper in love with him as he strides confidently over the rocky terrain, as if he'd done it a thousand times before. I'm also struck by how absolutely alone we are out here. There were two other cars parked at the trailhead, but we haven't seen a single soul since we started walking and there are no signs of life in any direction, not even a ranger station or fire tower. Occasionally, we pass an area that had a man-made retaining wall in place to stave off erosion, but otherwise, 
It was just us, and the trees and the ferns and the occasional fluttering of wings overhead. And then, as if some internal clock had gone off after a few hours, Sam paused near clearing, pulled out his map to confirm, and then announced that we've arrived at our home for the night. He then intuitively walked to the best spot to erect our tent, and we started the routine of settling in. Why don't you gather some firewood while I set up the tent, and then I'll get a fire going, Sam suggested as I shrugged my 20-pound pack off my shoulders, and my whole body rejoiced with relief. I hitchhiked all over Europe in my early 20s wearing a 30-pound pack, and thinking back, it felt like nothing at the time. I kept my urge to announce that I'm officially old to myself, as I did a quick stretch to loosen my protesting back muscles, and instead agreed to Sam's plan and set off to find some dry wood. I wasn't ready to admit it out loud to Sam, but he was right. I was really enjoying the trip and the sweet smell of the untouched soil under my feet was relaxing me in a way that I hadn't felt in a long, long time. By the time dinner was over, I was so relaxed that I could barely stay awake for a cold beer by the fire. But I rallied and enjoyed the stillness and the stars that started to appear around us for another hour before I put myself to bed around 9 p.m. The following day was even better. I woke up to the gentle sounds of nature and a wonderful mix of freshness and humidity in the air around me. It put me in a good mood immediately, and the novelty of making coffee and breakfast over an open fire bolstered my mood even more. Sam and I almost immediately fell into step with each other on the trail, and the deeper we got into the forest, the more majestic it became. Sam mostly plays it cool because that's his personality— but I can't help but gasp any time we come around a bend to reveal a dramatic, rocky groove in the landscape, or a waterfall, or vista. It's amazing how quickly you can forget just how beautiful our planet is. And holy shit, this place is beautiful! We stopped for lunch midday at the base of a small double waterfall, and I called out to Sam that I was going to find a place to pee as he unpacked a few things for us to eat. I walked off of the path several feet and squatted behind a moss-covered boulder to relieve myself and used the stiff weight of the rock to lean my back against for more stability. As I was heading back to Sam, I wasn't paying attention and accidentally stepped in a deep puddle. I looked down, and to my absolute horror, the liquid surrounding my foot in the puddle was a deep, sloshing red. I pulled my foot out and stumbled backward, landing hard on my butt as I lost my footing. Sam, come here! I called out, and he immediately turned and hurried in my direction. What the fuck is that? I asked and pointed to the puddle once he was close enough to see. Is there a dead animal nearby? I had pulled myself back onto my feet and scanned the surrounding woods for a dead deer or coyote who could have bled and made the puddle. Whoa, Sam said with uncharacteristic awe in his voice. He knelt down to study the crimson pool and lowered his head until he was close enough to sniff it. Don't get too close, I warned, and pulled him away from it slightly. He shrugged me off gently, totally enthralled by the liquid. And when he looked up at me, his eyes were shining with excitement. Sam had studied biology in college, which explained his sustained love for the outdoors. 
When he'd moved to San Francisco in the early 2000s, he'd learned coding like so many other elder millennials, and he abandoned a career in biology. But his fascination with natural wonders persisted. It's okay, he said and sniffed it again, much to my disgust. I can't believe it. I think this is just iron or algae in the water. He stood up and craned his neck to survey the area around us. We're close enough to the ocean that maybe the groundwater is red from an algae bloom, but my guess is that it's iron. He crouched down again to study it. I've read about hidden iron deposits coming to the surface and rusting, but it's usually farther north where it's colder. He shrugged and looked up at me. Climate change is the easiest explanation. It's cool to see something like this, though. I shivered despite his explanation and smiled. You're one sick fuck, you know that? He stood up and grabbed me lovingly. You love that about me. You can't deny it. He planted a kiss on the top of my head as we walked back toward our path, and I agreed with him. I did love that about him. I loved everything about him. We hiked for four more hours after lunch, and Sam was more animated than he'd been earlier in the day. The iron pool had awoken a sweet side of him that I didn't get to see very often. He was almost childlike as he pointed out interesting plants and growth patterns along the path. He said that he couldn't wait to show me the tide pools once we got to the ocean. There's so much cool shit in there, he'd said with his eyes wide and sparkling with excitement. At that moment, I was deeply grateful that I'd agreed to take the hike with him. He was always a kind and really fun person, but life in the city tends to stifle things like unfiltered joy and wonder. And it was a really special thing to share with him for the first time in our four-year relationship. Conversation eventually wandered to my career, and I had recently been promoted to the assistant director position for a nonprofit organization that provided resources for single mothers in underserved communities. I was a little anxious to take on the role when we returned from our trip, and Sam had an amazing mind when it came to strategy and programming. So he helped me brainstorm some things that I could implement to expand our reach and resources for the various programs. At one point in the conversation, I was talking about a new mother in the program who had a son who was about three years old and was such a delightful little kid. I was sharing a story about how bright he was and how he'd written a song for me that rhymed with my name, which is Allison, with the word growl to come up with Growlison, to come up with the lyric, I know a girl, her name is Allison. She has a dog and he's so mean, his name is Growlison, which I thought was incredibly creative for his age. When I was done with the story, Sam didn't react and I realized that he hadn't responded for several minutes. He had a sad, far off look in his eye and I immediately knew he was thinking about the baby. He would be three now, huh? I asked, and Sam nodded and swiped at his eye to keep a tear from falling. I took his hand to give it a squeeze and allowed myself to think back to the baby we'd lost three years before. We hadn't planned on getting pregnant, especially considering it was only a year into our relationship and we hadn't even started talking about marriage. But we were really excited when we found out because we'd both always wanted to be parents. And so we decided to give it a go. I was working in finance at the time, so we were making plenty of money to support a baby and upgrade our apartment, even with climbing Bay Area rental prices. Everything was on track with the baby's development, 
and we were about to sign a lease on a two-bedroom on Potrero Hill, when one day, out of the blue, I was at my office and felt an excruciating pain in my side. It was so painful, I collapsed to my knees, and my coworkers had to call an ambulance. I was only five months along in my pregnancy, but I went into premature labor, and as soon as the baby was born, I knew something was wrong. There was no crying, and the look on Sam's and the doctor's faces told me that he was in trouble. The nurses rushed him out of the room, and it wasn't long before one of them returned to tell us that he hadn't made it. And suddenly, it was just Sam and I again, stunned and childless and heartbroken. We were both able to find good therapists, were amazingly strong for each other, and in the end, it made us much, much closer. We would always mourn the lost little boy, but we would try again one day. And I switched my career to help other mothers in the meantime, as a way to try to heal the hole in my heart that my lost baby left. I knew Sam was probably going to propose in the next couple of months, and maybe even on that trip, so we would have another chance to be parents again soon. And the thought made my heart leap with an anxious love for our future family. We took another moment to honor the son we'd lost before setting out again. Sad but grateful, and at peace in the gorgeous nature that spread out around us and offered us a space to heal even more. We stopped to set up camp before the light was lost behind the trees and steep cliffs. It had only taken two nights for us to fall into a silent routine of splitting up the duties so that we were warm and fed and comfortable by the time it was fully dark out. Once the stars were out, we snuggled contentedly into our sleeping bags, and I fell asleep full of gratitude and excited for what the next day would bring. Sometime in the middle of the night, I was awoken by a deep whomp sound that radiated through the ground underneath the tent and into my bones. It reminded me of the sound of something very large and heavy, like a bowling ball falling from a great distance into the compacted earth. And I sat upright and listened for the telltale crackling of a falling tree or some other clue for what had made the sound. There were no other sounds in the woods around us, but a couple of seconds later, the lower corner of the tent in front of me started to move. I studied the spot for a moment and it looked like something soft and a couple of inches wide was rubbing back and forth against the fabric of the wall. It moved back and forth rhythmically in the corner for a couple of seconds, and then it seemed to duplicate in either direction. And suddenly there were two more small soft things swishing against the fabric wall. They looked like wings or tails and reminded me of a miniature car wash where the tassels rub against the exterior of your car to gently scrub it clean. I grabbed for Sam and nudged him awake without saying a word. He rolled over sleepily and looked at me with one half-opened eye while muttering a soft, What is it? I put my finger over my lips to silence him in case it was a large cat or something potentially dangerous and pointed toward the corner where the movement was happening. He rolled over completely and sat up to squint toward the spot where I was pointing. I scooted my body sideways to be closer to him as we watched the soft movement growing again, 
doubling in size to each side, but also creating another row of movement above the bottom row. Suddenly, there were two rows of something gently rubbing against the tent in a back-and-forth motion, over and over and over, without stopping or pausing. Sam reached for the heavy flashlight he kept next to his sleeping bag, and the row doubled again, one row out on either side and one row up. The sound of the movement grew louder and more persistent as the objects spread out more and pressed in a little harder. So the tent started to strain a bit inward under the pressure. I looked at Sam, unsure of what to do, and he just put a finger up to his lips to signal that we stay silent and hope whatever it was outside of our tent would lose interest and move on. Just as I turned back to the tent, another row of feathery objects appeared on either side and above the already swirling rows, and something sharp also appeared above all of it and pushed in on the tent with a pinprick of pressure. The whooshing sound grew louder and louder as the sharp point slowly pushed inward, straining the fabric to the point that it started to tear slightly. I looked to Sam with panic in my eyes. Whatever it was was about to get in, and I didn't know if we were prepared to defend ourselves against it. Sam lurched toward the back of the tent and grabbed his pack. He started rooting around in a side pocket, and I assumed he was looking for bear spray or a flare to use to defend us, but as he searched, another massive whomp sound echoed in the distance, sending a dull shockwave through the ground and our bodies, and all at once, the rustling stopped and whatever it was retreated. The sharp point disappeared too, and the tent returned to its normal form with a delicate ripple. Sam and I stared at each other, wide-eyed, for several seconds while we waited to see if there would be any more movement. But the forest was perfectly still. Once we felt confident we were somewhat safe, we crawled out of the tent to investigate what had just happened. The surrounding woods remained perfectly calm as we circled around our tent and looked for any signs of what had been trying to break in. And there was nothing. No feathers, no footprints, no broken branches or piles of leaves or anything that would explain what had just woken us in the night. We had chosen a spot that was in an area with the fewest trees, and Sam always inspected the trees nearby to make sure there were no signs that they were rotting or dying. So we felt relatively sure that we were safe from falling branches. But we did a sweep of the canopy with our flashlights just in case. The whomping sound had come from far away, but it's extremely unsettling to hear something large fall in the woods. And I suddenly felt very small and very vulnerable in the middle of nowhere. How long would it take for us to find help if something happened to us? What if Sam got seriously injured and I had to hike out alone? What if we both got hurt and died in the middle of nowhere? Would anyone ever find us? The reality of our situation came slamming down on me and panic started to wrap thick bands around my chest. I sat down on a log and forced myself to take several slow, deep breaths to calm down. The last thing I needed was a medical emergency of my own making. And Sam came over to comfort me, sensing my panic and fear. It's okay, he reassured me. I think it was just a crane or an osprey. It must have run into something, or maybe it was sick and disoriented and it got scared off by whatever fell. 
He wrapped an arm around me, and I immediately felt better. It's just extra scary in the middle of the night, but I promise everything will feel normal again in the morning. He gave me a squeeze, and I nodded. (laughs) Shit's wild and weird out here, he said and laughed to lift my mood, which worked. Yeah, you're right, I agreed. Once my adrenaline and panic subsided and I could think more clearly, I knew he was probably right. We were in the middle of one of the most dense natural landscapes in the U.S., and it was strange that we hadn't encountered something like that sooner. Sam had told me earlier that there were something like a thousand different species of creatures around us in the forest at any given time, and so the odds that a wounded bird would stumble upon our camp and attack our tent were pretty good. You gonna be okay? He asked after a beat. Yeah, for sure. I nodded, shot him a smile, and pulled myself up to standing. I'm not built for this nature shit, I joked, and we both laughed and went back to our tent. It took me a while to fall back to sleep, but somehow I managed to get a couple more hours of rest before the sun came up and coaxed me out of my slumber. And Sam was right. With the sun out and the birds quietly chirping, and the smell of freshly brewed coffee wafting in on the morning breeze, I did feel better and more normal again. The strange events of the night before felt like a dream or distant memory. And so I stretched and pulled on my fleece jacket and exited the tent so that we could start the third full day of our trip. Sweet Sam stayed close that morning and we chatted as we hiked to keep the mood light. The weather was slightly warmer that day and I'd fully acclimated to carrying my pack and walking for miles. And so I'd fallen into an easy rhythm and was feeling lighthearted and one with our surroundings. My eyes had also adjusted, and I was noticing small details that I hadn't been able to perceive when we'd started, like small crystals embedded in the cliffs or tiny white flowers peeking out from the moss. After we'd been hiking for around two hours, I glanced off of the trail and spotted a patch of deep purple several feet from us, which I pointed out to Sam, and he went to investigate. He bent over the patch for a moment, motioned for me to join him, and I watched him pluck something from it and pop it into his mouth as I cut through the ferns and short bushes between us. "'Wild blackberries!' he exclaimed and handed me a fistful. "'They're absolutely delicious!' I popped a large, juicy berry into my mouth and savored the exquisite sweetness that burst from the fruit and onto my tongue. "'Oh, wow!' I said through my mouthful of berries. "'That might be the best berry I've ever tasted!' Right? Sam said and brushed his hand past another cluster, which fell easily from the bush and into his other hand. I helped myself to a couple more and then turned my body to enjoy the view opposite of the path and further into the compact woods. I marveled at the colossal ferns that seemed prehistoric in their size and density. How long had they been rooted here, untouched and thriving in the humid air of this remote place? What would I become if I stayed here forever, wild and undisturbed and nourished by the elements? I closed my eyes and imagined my feet taking root in the dark soil and my limbs stretching out and out and up into infinity to intertwine with the ancient foliage in every direction. And the thought simultaneously calmed and empowered me. I took a deep breath and opened my eyes, and there was a flash of something white 
further into the thicket and off to the left. I strained my eyes and waited, and just a couple of seconds later, I saw it again. The distinct flash of white and pale pink, neither of which were colors that we'd seen very often since we'd been in the woods. I watched for a moment more to make sure it wasn't just the splash of white on the underside of a deer's tail. But when I saw it again, it was low and slow and in the same place that I'd seen it the first two times. Sam. Sam, someone's there. I said in a low but urgent voice. I grabbed his arm, making him lose his grip on the last handful of berries, and I pulled him toward me and pointed in the direction of the movement. It's just a bird or something he said and looked back longingly at the berry bush. No, Sam, look, I said again and pulled him harder to force him to see what I was seeing. It's not the right color and it's too low. He leveled his head so it was parallel with mine and squinted into the distance to locate what I was seeing. After two more seconds, it moved again, a rapid succession of pink, then white, then pink. And Sam sucked in his breath sharply and looked at me. Holy shit, you're right, he said and then looked back. We watched intently as it appeared and disappeared a couple more times. And Sam half whispered, I think it's too little to be dangerous. And I nodded in agreement. Whatever it was, it looked small and soft and stuck. I, I think it's trapped, I said, and wondered if it could be a large rabbit or possum in a snare. It felt like we were too far out for people to be setting up traps, but I didn't know the first thing about the people who inhabited the island, so it could be possible. Yeah, Sam nodded and started to move forward slowly. I think you're right. We proceeded with caution, keeping an eye on whatever it was every step of the way, but it seemed gentle and non-threatening, and so we kept moving forward until we were just on the other side of the thick stand of trees bushes that were obstructing our view. I inched to the side of the tangle and slowly peeked around and was absolutely appalled by what I saw. Sam! I almost screamed. It's a baby! I hurried around the brambles so I could get a better look and found myself standing at the edge of a small clearing with a medium-sized tree right in the middle. There was a rope wound around the tree several times, and at the end of the knot, the rope extended out a foot and was then wound around and tied to the small, pudgy arm of a very small boy. The boy turned toward us when he heard me call out, and as he turned, my breath was knocked from my body, and I collapsed to my knees. After Sam and I had lost our baby, I'd spent an unhealthy amount of time studying baby pictures of Sam and I, and dreaming of the baby that would never be, and superimposing our features onto each other's in my mind. I'd studied every inch of every photo of baby Sam until he finally convinced me that my interest had reached obsession and that I needed to put the pictures away and start to try to move on. I had complied, but I had Sam's little face with its dark curls and thick lashes and deep blue eyes and cleft chin imprinted on my mind and in my memory. And as the little boy that was tied to a tree in the middle of absolutely nowhere turned and looked into my eyes, he was the spitting image of Sam as a baby. Every inch of the little boy resembled Sam when he was a toddler, down to the deep divot in his chin that Sam still had as an adult, 
and was one of my favorite features of his handsome face. I let out a sob and planted my hands in the dirt and leaves to steady myself, and the little boy raised one hand toward me and said with the softest and sweetest voice I'd ever heard, Help, Mimi. My head started spinning out of control, and I took several deep breaths to try to clear it and regain composure as Sam rushed past me to help the boy. The dizzy spell passed, and I looked to the boy for a moment to try to shake the impossible thought that he was identical to my boyfriend as a baby. But he just cocked one eyebrow at me in the exact same way that Sam always did, and I had to push the insanity of the coincidence from my mind so that I could help Sam save this little boy. I got to my feet and ran toward them as Sam shouted, Help me, Allison! and tugged unsuccessfully at the rope cutting into his tiny wrist. Get the knife in the outside top pocket, Sam demanded gently, and put a hand to the boy's cheek to comfort him. It's okay, buddy, we'll get you out of here, he promised, and I handed him the small Swiss army knife I'd retrieved from his pack. Hold on to him, Sam said, and I wrapped my arms around the boy from behind and pulled him close so that I could steady his arm and body as Sam slowly cut the rope loose. Who would do this? He said with a desperation and loathing in his voice that I had never heard before. And I felt the exact same way. What kind of absolute monster would tie a toddler to a tree in early spring in the Pacific Northwest? If he didn't get killed by a bear or a cougar, the unpredictable weather could seriously hurt or kill him in just a matter of hours. I said a silent prayer that we'd found him before nightfall because the temperature dropped to close to freezing after dark and he wouldn't have survived in his thin cotton shirt and pants and bare feet. It took a painfully long time for Sam to free the boy with the semi-dull blade of the small knife, but after several minutes of painstaking sawing, the rope gave way and the boy's ravaged wrist was exposed, raw and red from the rope that had been tied far too tight. I studied his hands and fingers, which still had a healthy color to them, thank God, and he started making little grabbing motions with both hands so it seemed he still had full mobility. You're gonna be okay, sweetie, I said and dropped my pack to find a sweatshirt to wrap him in to stay warm. Sam kneeled down until he was eye level with the kid and asked him gently, What's your name, buddy? The boy just blinked at Sam and opened and closed his small fingers into half fists, which looked like either a nervous gesture or an attempt to return the blood flow to his tiny digits. Where is your mom and dad? Sam asked again and placed a hand softly on the boy's shoulder. The boy turned to me and extended a chubby hand. Mimi, he stated, and I stopped in my tracks to contemplate what he was trying to say. Who's Mimi, buddy? Sam asked, and the boy took one step toward me and repeated the word. Mimi, he stated in his tiny voice, and continued to point at me while staring at Sam. I must remind him of someone, I said to Sam and crouched next to the boy. I'm going to put this on you to keep you warm, okay? I asked him and held out the sweatshirt for him to see. He turned toward me slowly and simply said, Mimi. And his eyes sparkled a bit. A shiver ran through my body as the enormity of the situation started to register and I pulled the shirt over the boy's head and rolled up the sleeves so he would have access to his arms. I put out my arms, and when he didn't protest, I scooped him up and held him to my chest. He 
he was surprisingly warm, and I could feel his little heart beating in double time next to my larger adult heart. And I was overwhelmed with an intense and overpowering need to protect the child at all costs. What the fuck do we do? I asked Sam, trying to keep my voice level so I wouldn't upset the boy. Sam was already pulling his trail map out of the side flap he kept it in for easy access, and he studied it for several minutes, glancing up every once in a while to confirm something he was reading on the guide. Okay, he said, and looked at me once he was satisfied with the plan he'd come up with. I think I found a town that's not that far. He stood next to me so we could study the map together, and pointed to a spot on the trail that was colored red and spanned the length of the page. We're right around here, he said, and then moved his finger to a smaller green-colored road that intersected our deep red line from north to south. I think this is a forest service road that we'll have access to in a few miles. His finger moved up the line and stopped near the top of the page. And I'm pretty sure this is a tiny village that has limited services for the rangers and the handful of residents that live on this side of the island. I'm sure we can find a phone or a car or something that can help us there. The boy's head swiveled to look at me, and he and Sam waited for me to digest the information and respond. Sounds like a plan, I said weakly and prayed that Sam knew what he was talking about. The little boy seemed okay, but we had no idea how long he'd been out there, or if he had any internal damage that we couldn't see that would require life-saving treatment. I had a brief thought that the evil person who had tied him up out there might come looking for him and in turn find us, but brushed it off because we had no choice but to help the tiny abandoned child. Give me your pack, he said and then pulled off his own. He emptied most of the contents of his bag and then took a few of the less necessary items out of mine. He replaced the items in my pack with the food and other necessities he'd been carrying and then fashioned a sort of child carrier out of his empty backpack. As I watched him work, I couldn't help but feel a wave of love and admiration for his ingenious and thoughtful mind. And once he was satisfied with his work, he positioned the pack on his back and instructed me to put the boy in the carrier so that his little arms and legs would wrap around Sam's waist and sides. The boy didn't protest at all as I slid him in between the bag and Sam's back and simply looked over at me and blinked his overly long lashes, which resurrected the uncanny resemblance between him and baby Sam but I pushed it out of my mind again so I could focus on the terrifying journey ahead of us. Sam led us back to the trail and the boy bounced gently in front of me as they stepped over large rocks and branches on the way. He didn't make a peep as we started our hike toward the service road and Sam and I walked in identical silence as we processed what was happening to us. We didn't dare talk about the potential danger that lurked in the forest but Sam had handed me the can of bear spray before we'd left the clearing, and I kept my head on a swivel and my ears open to any sign of danger nearby. I was able to relax slightly after we'd hiked for two hours without incident, and the boy seemed perfectly content in his makeshift carrier, which was also comforting. I don't think my nerves could have handled a hysterical and traumatized toddler and I shuddered to think how much harder the journey would have been if he'd been fighting us every step of the way. But he didn't. Not even a little bit. It was as if he'd known us his entire short life, and he couldn't have been more relaxed as we put one foot in front of the other in search of the service road that would hopefully lead us to someone who could help. 
I almost yelped with glee when the telltale brown forest service sign appeared on the horizon that designated the intersection of the road. The road was made of compacted dirt and was built to allow rangers and government vehicles to access areas more quickly in case of fire or other emergencies, and I was extremely relieved to see that it didn't look very steep or treacherous. Sam took a quick moment to check his map one more time before giving me a nod and taking a right to head up the road that would lead us over a ridge and eventually, hopefully, to a small town with a functioning phone. It took just over two hours to ascend and descend the ridge, and the boy was an absolute angel the entire time. He accepted some occasional sips of water from my water bottle and politely nibbled on a section of trail mix bar as we hiked, but was otherwise completely silent and exceptionally well-behaved. I couldn't help but reach out my hand to give him an affectionate caress on the side of his soft, curly head at one point when we took a short break, and he just looked into my eyes with perfect trust and calm, and my heart swelled a bit despite the bizarre circumstances that had brought him into our lives. I did yelp with glee when the village appeared on the horizon at the end of the road. I guessed it was around 4 p.m., so the sun was still high in the sky, and the red and brown rooftops of the handful of buildings stood out like tiny raffle tickets against the aggressive green of the surrounding wood. Oh, thank God, Sam sighed and turned to me to smile for the first time since we'd found the boy. I could tell he was just as relieved that he'd gotten it right as he was that we were going to be okay that the boy was going to be okay. We practically ran the last half mile to the town, and Sam pointed to the small gas station that also served as the town grocery store once we were close enough to see the buildings clearly. That's probably our best bet, he said, and I agreed as I took inventory of the small handful of other buildings, which mostly looked vacant or closed for the day. My guess was that the store was the only functioning business and probably stayed afloat by selling supplies to the government agencies who worked in the National Park, students of the tiny marine university at the far end of the island, and the occasional hiker or camper. To my unbelievable relief, the door swung open when we pushed it, and there was a tring of a loud bell overhead to signify that a rare customer had arrived. It took a few minutes, but eventually a man who looked like he was in his late 70s emerged from the back, looking annoyed that someone had pulled him away from whatever he'd been doing in the back. He took one look at our frantic faces, raised an eyebrow, and asked, Can I help you? Yes, Sam said breathlessly, and I reached to pull the boy from Sam's back. We need help. We found this boy tied to a tree in the woods. Do you have a phone we can use? I pulled the boy out of his temporary carrier and snuggled him to my hip. His little arms instinctively wrapped around my neck, and he studied the man with a serene look on his face. As I turned to face the man who had noticed the boy, I saw a look of absolute horror sweep over his face, distorting his features and draining the blood from his skin. Before Sam had even finished what he was saying, the man was diving under the counter in front of him with amazing agility for a man his age. And in one swift motion, he'd retrieved a large shotgun and was aiming it directly at the boy. Oh my God! I screamed and instinctively ducked behind a rack, cradling the boy protectively as I tried desperately to find cover. You don't know what you've done. You weren't supposed to bring him out of there, the man shouted, 
and the ear-splitting thunder of the rifle firing filled the small store. The rack of groceries I was hiding behind exploded beside me and I heard the sound of the air going out of someone's lungs with a thump. A second later, the shotgun went off again. I knew I had to make a run for it, so I peeked around what was left of the tall shelf and it looked like I was suddenly alone in the store. The smell of burnt gunpowder hung in the air, but the room was otherwise empty and silent. I pulled the boy's head toward the crook of my neck to protect him the best I could and quickly and quietly crept to the counter and peered behind. In the spot where the man had been standing, there was now a pile of bodies. And I could clearly see Sam's on top with a massive bleeding hole blown through the midsection of his bright blue jacket. Oh, Sam! I sobbed. And suddenly the body below him stirred as the old man tried to free himself out from under my dead boyfriend's body. You don't know what you've done! He shouted as he tried unsuccessfully to shift Sam's dead weight. Give me that boy, it might not be too late! The boy had lifted his head and turned his blue eyes toward me and said the only two words he'd said since we'd met him. Mimi, help. The man had managed to move Sam's body most of the way off of him and was struggling to get any kind of solid grip on the floor as his hands and feet were slipping in Sam's thick blood. I frantically scanned the room and my eyes landed on a large set of keys hanging on a hook on the wall just beyond where the old man was struggling. Without thinking, I launched myself over him, grabbed the keys, and then pulled myself free when he grabbed the edge of my jacket at the last second. I carried the boy past the destroyed section of the store, through the front door, and straight to the only truck parked in front. I thanked my lucky stars that people don't lock their cars in remote areas, and so I was able to quickly slide the boy into the passenger side and buckle him in before throwing myself into the driver's seat and hunting through the key ring for the key with the corresponding make of the truck. Just as I found the key and the truck roared to life, the man burst through the door of the store, covered in Sam's blood from head to toe, and he leveled the shotgun to aim it at the boy. I threw the truck into reverse and slammed on the gas as the shotgun rang out for the third time and the passenger side view mirror erupted into a million pieces. I heard the gun go off one more time as I raced out of the town, but we were too far away for it to make contact. I pressed the pedal as far down as it would go and we flew past the buildings in the town and a handful of rundown houses. As we passed the last house, a woman emerged from the front door and looked to the sky as her hands clutched at her chest. I instinctively looked in the rearview mirror, and just as we passed the woman, a mammoth flock of birds descended on her and started ripping into her flesh. In just a couple of seconds, she was completely engulfed in a flurry of black feathers and frantic bodies, followed by her house, and then the entire town. The cloud was so thick I couldn't see the roofs of the buildings as the town disappeared behind us. I watched for as long as I safely could, and when I turned my eyes back to the road, I gasped as a thick, syrupy red liquid flowed up from the sides and started to cover the path in front of us. I glanced at the boy, who just stared out of the window intently, and a small line of blood was flowing from his nose. Luckily at that moment, I could see another small cluster of houses up ahead and looked at the boy again briefly and said, It's gonna be okay, sweetie. I'm gonna pull over and check you out. It, it looks like you're hurt. Mimi, help. The boy repeated and stared straight ahead at the bubbling red liquid that was now flowing into the yards of the homes ahead of us. When we were a couple of hundred yards from the first home, 
A woman emerged from the front door and I could see the glint of a shotgun in her hands even from that distance. What is happening? I shouted in fear and frustration. Mimi, help. The boy repeated again and smiled for the first time since we'd found him earlier that day. I'm trying, sweetie. I'm trying to help you, but I don't know what's happening. I wasn't sure whether to slow down or to blaze by the woman who was starting to aim the gun toward us. And the boy said again, louder, Mimi, help. I'm trying, I said, shouting now, the panic fully evident in my voice. My hands gripped the steering wheel as hard as they could as the tires fought the slippery substance that threatened to overtake the vehicle. I pressed down on the gas again as hard as I could, and just as we passed the woman, an elk emerged at full speed from the side of her house and rammed into her body, violently knocking her off of her feet and sending her into the air. I pulled my attention back to the road before I could watch her hit the ground, but I was positive she wouldn't be able to get back up in time to hurt us, if at all. Mimi, help, the boy said again, his voice rising in volume and intensity. I know! I said with frustration, I'm trying. The blood was soaking into the boy's thin shirt and I studied him for a moment more and tried to decide if I should pull over to stop the bleeding, but the decision was made for me. Before I could find a safe place to stop, the truck was rocked as something large and heavy slammed down on the hood and forced me to press on the brakes. I looked back at the hood expecting to see a deer or elk dying ahead of us, but it was a human man broken and splayed out in every direction, having fallen straight down onto the hood from above. Despite the fact that every bone in his body looked like it had shattered, the instant after he hit, he somehow mustered the strength to throw his body toward the boy and slam down on the windshield in front of where the boy was sitting. The boy watched the man without a shred of emotion until the life drained from the man's eyes, and he then tilted his small head toward the sky turned slowly to see what had caught his attention, and there was an enormous flock of birds clouding the horizon several miles in the distance. The flock was so thick, they were casting a dark shadow over the valley below them, and snuffing out the bright sun that still hung in the afternoon sky. Mimi, help! Mimi, help! the boy chanted, fixated on the swarming sky ahead of us. What is happening? I asked again and studied him, the horror rising in my chest. Mimi, help. Mimi, help. He said over and over and slowly turned his head toward me. His blue eyes had darkened to an almost black and where his pupils had been, there was a cavernous swirling that mirrored the movement of the birds in the sky just ahead of us. The truck started to slide slightly as the red liquid continued to rise and the man's body started to shift in my periphery as the truck rocked slightly over a gentle wave. The boy smiled again as our eyes locked. He drew in a deep breath and continued to chant with his voice rising in a deafening crescendo. Mimi, help! 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 Mimi, help!
This story was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Kay Weaver. For more scary stories that you cannot get out of your head, please join our Patreon at Patreon backslash Please Leave Pod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at Please Leave Pod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. If you like this story, please take a second to give us a review or rating. It's just a couple of us trying to get this thing off the ground, so your support really helps us. This has been a Two Penguins Media Production. Quack. Quack.